I'm Mark Cuban. I'm Jackie Geist. And welcome to On The Tools. Every Wednesday... You mean hump day. ...we talk about what we've been watching, reading, listening to and scrolling through. We're self-appointed experts on content... Because that's our real job. ...and making each other laugh. But that's mostly what we do during 9 to 5. Welcome to On The Tools. Hey, Jackie, it's our last podcast for the year. Oh, that's a bit sad, but... We're, we're, we're off to season two. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Um, you're leaving today. What are you going to do over the holidays? I'm going to my parents, to the duckweed farm. (laughs) (laughs) My entire extended family will be there. So there isn't space for me to sleep inside. So I'm going to be sleeping in a tent. I didn't have a lot of hopes about this tent. I saw the photo. It looks like a teepee. This morning my brother sent me a photo of it. I'm going to Burning Man essentially. (laughs) It is like a glass. In Newcastle. Burning Man in Newcastle. (laughs) Can you imagine? It'll be fun. (laughs) But, yeah, it's really, I don't know, my dad has splashed out a glamping thing and it's out of control. Chris is going to enjoy himself a Burning Man. There'll be a bonfire. I'm already planning my, like, outfit for Christmas around Burning Man style. I think it's basically naked. I don't know if my family's ready for that. No, I don't think so. Um, what what about know, you? A, I'm going to stay around in Sydney, I think. Normally I'd take off, but I think I'm going to be a tourist in my own city. And you know, everyone That's leaves. Nice. A staycation. A staycation. Yeah, no, I've got some, yeah, I don't know. I'll just see. I'll play it by ear. I don't have anything planned. I don't feel very festive this year. Why but, is that? Um, I don't know. It's been a big year. I'm tired. <laughs> it has been a big year. Heart um, attacks, you know. Yeah. Now, I know it's probably a bit early, but uh, do you have any New Year's resolutions? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should swear less on the podcast. That might make Hugh happy and potentially my parents. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that'll make Hugh very happy. <laughs> what about you? Uh, I don't know. Work less, laugh more. Um, oh, God, you sound like that sounds like a quote in a middle-aged woman's house. I uh, know. You know, eat less, get more fit. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Like, you know, what are the resolutions? Do we ever keep them? No. No. Mine is so. always to eat less, and every year I fail. So yeah, but you and I just love food. It's so good. It's food. Mm, laughing more sounds nice. That sounds. We good. had our on the tools Christmas party yesterday. Yeah, we sure did. Did you? We had that. Was it that polenta, crispy polenta with spanner crab? Yep, that was amazing. I know, but that's not going to do much for our weight loss, is it? <laughs> I don't so care. I, you don't care, but look. So I'm going to be talking about the volcano rescue from wakari which is a documentary on netflix and also something else on netflix called don't pick up the phone what do you got that sounds a bit scary don't it is a bit weird it's weird <laughs> it's really it's probably look every i think i feel like every time we sort of talk about what we've been watching we go oh this is so weird there's nothing weirder and then it just gets weirder <laughs> Life is strange. It's strange. <laughs> and what do you got? Beautiful and strange. I've got a documentary, Navalny, 
vulnerably. I cannot say that word. Vulnerably. Vulnerably. <laughs> vulnerably. So I'll start. So the volcano rescue from Wakari on Netflix. It's a fascinating documentary. This is the New Zealand volcano, yes. Yeah. So the filmmaker Rory Kendi directs this kind of tense story of 47 tourists and guides who basically go on this expedition to walk around an active volcano, uh, which is also known as White Island. The place, the vision is fair. Like, it's just like being on another planet. It's like there's this kind of green, it's like the sulfur colours and there's this kind of green stuff and it's just amazing. And then there's this body of water and it's acid, right? It's like an acid lake and it's just phenomenal and steamy and just it could be another planet. So these tourists go on to White Island, probably one of the most active volcanoes, but unlike... Um, some of the volcanoes, it doesn't have lava flow, uh, but belches lots of steam and rock out and, you know. Uh, so these sorts of eruptions cause pyroclastic flows which move what's, really, what's really. that? Well, pyroclastic flow is steam or hot gas and volcanic matter. You know, you've, you've probably seen, I don't know if you've ever seen a video of an eruption that's pyroclastic and it's like a really fast-moving wall mm of cloud or steam that runs down. And that's what this is. So the pyroclastic flow moves at tremendous speed and can reach up to 700 kilometres per hour and temperatures of 1,000 degrees or 1,800 Fahrenheit, right? So these poor tourists and guides are on this island and it erupts and basically they just get covered in this pyroclastic kind of and they get burnt horribly so after the eruption the local authorities deem the area immediately surrounding wakari's a no-fly no-go zone uh, the survivors most of whom you know have had horrific burns were essentially left to fend for themselves uh, and no hope of rescue so they were stuck there waiting to be rescued and they couldn't so the local residents then took matters into their own hands ignoring the directives that it was a no no go zone and launched a massive rescue attempt to retrieve the injured and the dying. I think twenty one people died or something. It was like just incredible. Anyway, through first hand accounts and quite seamless, like the the documentary is a, it's just an amazing journey. And so it retraces the events minute by minute, and it kind of highlights like these people who decided forget about it, let's just go, you know, with boats and helicopters and planes and risk their own lives. Gives you a bit of faith in humanity. Completely. Uh, And, you know, also the, I won't spoil it, but there was this one person on there who I think was with a group and I think they all perished except for him and he was horrifically burnt. And, you know, there's his mother and father and I think sibling. And so he realises he just has to get up and move and he was in agony mm-hmm. and he sort of made his way out uh, yeah look it's it is you know a story i guess of compassion i should point out that's unusual for a documentary to achieve the success that this this doco has achieved it hit number one in countries including the uk australia new zealand much of europe uh, and that's the very Leonardo unusual DiCaprio is involved in it somehow isn't he? yeah yeah so it's a collaboration so uh, kennedy uh who directed this, previously directed Downfall, the case against Boeing. So I don't, don't know if you know that story. Oh, I so, know of the documentary. I haven't seen it, though. Yeah, so it was a glitch, basically, I think, in the 
in Boeing's autopilot. So, you know, it caused a whole bunch of crashes and it was due to the software glitch in the Boeing 737 MAX. So she did that previously. And, you know, this documentary comes from Image Documentaries, Moxie Films and Appian Way, which is Leonardo DiCaprio's Mm. production entity. It's amazing, right? It's just fantastic. It's beautifully shot. The stories are amazing. And it kind of makes you wonder, like, you know, how would I behave in that? Would I go and rescue them, you know? Or if I was injured, would I have, you know, enough gumption to kind of fight the pain and everything and and try to make my way out of this carnage? It's quite incredible because you imagine in those kind of moments your your self-preservation must surely kick in, but there's so many examples of natural disasters where people just help each other and you see the best of the best of people after seeing this documentary there's no way i'm going to go and check out any vol- volcano or <laughs> like uh, it's, it's not turning me on i don't want to be burnt uh, <laughs> well i climbed mount fuji and that is actually a volcano and then at the top you can tell it's a volcano is it's it active? Dor- well it's dormant you so, probably you know- curse it now probably erupt tomorrow <laughs> but i was like i don't know i'm doing climbing and i'm like why am i here this could erupt <laughs> Oh, I think that that's how a lot of people felt. They they were interviewing this one person who kind of said, "Yeah, I'm not really feeling very comfortable being here," <laughs> right? And and said, "You know, what what's the likelihood of this erupting?" And I think the guy said, "Ah, oh, it's remote." And of course, it did. And I um, went to Pompeii in when I went to Italy recently, and that is just like I learned about that in ancient history at school. But what was it had- like? It's so interesting because they basically, the lava covered the city so it's so well preserved. So that's how they know so much about that particular era and time in, in Roman history. But you, you see the volcano, it's massive. So And it that it also is will erupt at some point too. And there's still houses all at the bottom of it. But Pompeii, <laughs> the most popular attraction there is the brothel. And <laughs> I'm not joking. It's like you had to queue to get into that part. And there is like... I'm sure there's a few few eruptions there. <laughs> For sure. There's like there, there is ancient porn on the walls. There's like guys with massive, massive penises. Oh really? Um, yeah, and as you walk even just towards the brothel, you just notice there's like dicks on the ground made out of or like just you know there's a pebble for the stone a stone pebble and then there's a stone penis and the penis is pointing in the direction of the brothel so that was like their signpost where to go there's no google maps there was deep maps (laughs) just just fancy fancy artwork on the floor yeah but you do you see lots of other stuff like these like houses and there's complete mosaics but the thing that is like Really, there's so the lava, I guess, where the bodies were, they were hollowed out. So they poured, I don't know if it's concrete or whatever, they poured in there. So they basically, what do you mean hollowed out? What they were just covered in something and then what they did. Yeah, so where the bodies were, it's kind of just like preserved in a hollow. So they filled those hollows with some sort of material, like a concrete or something, and it basically made the shape of a person. So they're all like cowering or praying. Like the position their bodies were when they died, basically, when the volcano came. And there's like dogs. Um, that's like quite, that kind of makes you feel like, wow, this is wow. what it was like. Yeah. So precarious. Life is a precarious thing, isn't it? I know. Well, 
by a bus tomorrow. I mean, my friend got hit by a bus. Like it really can happen. Yeah, but and, uh, he was drunk. He was drunk. No, it doesn't no, count. It's, no, she, it was a girl and she was not drunk. She was just stepped off the curb going to work. <laughs> she got hit by a bus and she was in the hospital and I said, how are you going? And she's like, I really wore matching underwear. You know that thing that your parents say, like make sure you wear matching underwear in case you get hit by a bus. She's like, I really did it. And then I got hit by a Lucky. <laughs> when I had the heart attack, I was actually thinking the same thing, sort of cutting Were everything you wearing off. Matching had, underwear? No, no, but I had like, you know, good underpants on. That's good. Boxes. <laughs> Not and, like, you know, they're sort holy. of hacking away. Well, it's the first thing you think about. It's like, well, this is, you know, they're shaving you and doing all sorts of things. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what have you got? I've been watching another, I've also been watching a documentary, Navalny by Daniel Roja. And it was a film. Completely made in secret. It's a documentary, but it might as well be a spy thriller. And in fact, that's what the subject, Alexei Navalny, who's the Russian opposition leader, who's pro-democracy and anti-corruption, he asked the director to do that in the opening scene to make the movie into a thriller. And then he says, and then if I'm killed, you can make a boring movie of memory. Mm. So as you might remember from the news in 2020, on a flight from Siberia to Moscow, Navalny he just suddenly became gravely ill out of nowhere and the flight made an emergency landing and then he was held in a Siberian hospital under force uh, and, like, his family couldn't get in. And his wife, she's, like, heavily lob- lobbying and then eventually he gets him to be able to be shifted to a hospital in Germany. And that while he's there, he discovers he's been poisoned with Novichok, which is a nerve agent. Yeah, yeah. The Kremlin love to use. It's it's like their signature poison. It's the same agent they used in the Salisbury poisoning in Britain. <laughs> and when Navalny learns what's happened to him, his response is, what the fuck? That is so stupid. Like it's so obviously Putin. Um, like essentially he thought he was too big for Putin to come after him so blatantly. As he says in the film, it's like, as I became more famous, I was sure my life was becoming safer because it would be problematic for them to kill me. I was very wrong. And, like, I don't know, he's quite funny and he's extremely media savvy. He's got millions and millions of social media followers and we see him making TikToks to OMC's, like, 90s song, that you know, that how bizarre. How bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> he's, like, investigating his own poisoning. He's... He's extremely charismatic and he doesn't seem to take Putin seriously. And, look, maybe that's a defence mechanism, but Putin won't even say his name. Like they have cut to press conferences with Putin and he calls him like that person. Like he never acknowledges who he is. So it follows him as he recovers from this poisoning and attempts to work out exactly who did it with the help of his media team and an, <laughs> an investigative journal, journalist from Bellingcat, Christo Grosvev, who he calls a very kind Bulgarian nerd with a laptop. <laughs> wow. Uh, and they managed to work out identities of these FSB agents who tried to assassinate him. They even get his phone numbers and then Navalny rings them. He poses as one of their superiors as though he's conducting an investigation into how his poisoning went wrong. And not to give anything away if you don't know what happened, but it is that is it's the most tense, hilarious, draw-dropping scene in the movie. Like it just defies belief This when he rings these people. But the movie is just, it's a terrifying portrait into Russia. May before the 
war in Ukraine. It's absurd. It's completely gripping. It's exciting as a film, but it's also sad because Navalny is currently in jail after returning to Russia and who knows when, if ever, he will ever be released. Like likely never while Putin is alive. He's currently Can in solitary. Can you imagine? Just yeah. terrible. He's currently in solitary confinement, I think. And what was that um, called again? Navalny, yeah. Navalny. It, it premiered at Sundance <clears throat> earlier this year and it was like a secret until it played um, and it won like the Audience Award and a Festival Favourite. It's a hot tip for the Oscars, I think. So, yeah, it's really good. I'll watch it, I think. All you need is headphones. So I watched something else on Netflix called Don't Pick Up the Phone. Um, I don't know. This this was mind-boggling. Um I've got so many questions, so many questions. I was appalled by this film, both in terms of McDonald's complete disregard for the safety of its staff and inability to take responsibility, but also the general stupidity of the people involved. Um, the events you that have unfold, one documentary about the best of humanity and here. The worst. the worst. And then the events are just too bizarre for words. So Don't Pick Up the Phone is a docuseries following the true story of an investigation into a hoax caller who talked managers, now get this, talked managers into strip-searching employees at fast food businesses across the US, a lot of them at McDonald's. The scam was straightforward. So a man would call <laughs> a fast insane. food restaurant or occasionally a grocery store pretending to be a police officer. He would state that he received a complaint that one of the staff members had stolen a wallet from a customer and then over the phone, convinced the manager and others to strip search female employees and in some cases sexually assault them, right? Like by phone. It's just, it's just bizarre. So here's an example. How can he make them sexually assault them? Well, That's just I'll, them. I'll tell you. So in November mm. 2000, a caller convinced a manager of Kentucky McDonald's to undress herself in front of a customer who was believed what? to... Yeah, yeah, who was believed to be a suspected... Uh, of sexual offences. The caller said this would aid nearby undercover officers with catching him if he tried to assault her. What the f- So she did, right? I mean- And who was who was this other person? Was well, that a- no, he just makes, it says, kind of gives this description, says there's somebody in there, we're following them, you need to do, can you undress, you know, undress in front of this cat. So, like, that's one example. Um, in May in May 2020. May 2002, an 18-year-old woman began her first day at Niowa McDonald's where she was forced to strip, jog naked and assume a series of embarrassing poses all at the direction of this call on the phone, right? Anyway, and so this policeman got involved because one of the people who was caught up in this I think was his best friend's daughter and then he uncovered that there were more than 70 reports of these hoax calls in the US between 1992 and 2004 eventually culminating in an incident in 2004 in Mount Washington Kentucky which led to the arrest of this this guy however the charges were later dropped and I won't give any names but this particular incident saw a woman Donna Summers uh, the manager of a McDonald's in Kentucky, 
force an 18-year-old Louise Ogborne to remove her clothes in the back room as she'd been accused of theft by a man on the phone. She later enlisted the help of her fiancé, Walter Nix Jr., who made Ogborne dance and perform like star jumps or jumping jacks while naked. The The young woman was then forced to expose herself further, but get this, and form oral sex on Nix, who later phoned a friend and told them, I've done something terribly bad. Right? Yeah, so, no shit. So the manager gets a phone call from a guy who says he's a police officer stating that this description and that matched someone in the restaurant that had stolen a wallet, you have to strip search her. She's busy. So he says, look, you know, can you call somebody else to assist? So she calls her fiancé. It is just crazy, right? And the whole thing was that. I just the- think how would someone calls you and, okay, I'll just do it. That's just insane. Well, there was a camera. How? There was a camera recording this whole thing, right? And yeah, but the, like, well, that's what I mean. I feel, I feel for the victims, of course. But imagine if someone attempted to do that in Australia. No way that would happen. Or maybe it would. You I know? don't like unless the police officer is there in front of me. I'm not yeah, believing still, it. Still, you know, this is a minor. Right? Oh, I know. I wouldn't do it. It's just insane. You need a female officer. You need. There's, there's a whole procedure. I just can't. You know, and how performing. <laughs> Oral sex. Yeah, how is that trying to find the wallet? Well, completely, right? So, (laughs) But then, you know, I kind of wonder, would it happen here maybe? But maybe we're all gullible, you know, in relation to authority and maybe that's why financial fraud and identity theft is so prevalent. I don't know. People are just gullible. But I watched this thing and I was so shitty. I just was really annoyed because... It's like the height of stupidity. And obviously the guy who It's the it's gullibility, but then it's also there's no then there's no excuse for assault on top of that. But also you think that with so many of these incidences at McDonald's and other fast food chains, that they would then send out like a memo to all staff, you know, highlighting what's going on to be yes. aware of, you know, some sort of protocol. But never happened. And, and how did this guy do it so many times without this anyone catching him? Well, he used, um, so what was it, 2002 or whatever, so between 1992 and 2004. And so he was using, uh, you remember phone cards where you, you could yeah, pay yeah, and yeah. make calls anywhere using this number on the when anyway, you go overseas, so, you had to bring your phone card. Yeah, and so also in the US you could use a phone card and use the phone box. So there was no real way of chasing or tracking you down. And I think the guy was making all these calls from Florida. And, you know, there were two police officers who didn't know each other, both working on the case. And, you know, their their forensic work was unbelievable. And, you know, just I think they were amazing. They were the heroes of this thing. But I don't know. I just thought, how can you be so stupid? What is this person's motivations? Like, are they just sick? Like, what? No, it was kink. He was getting off on yeah, hearing okay. this stuff on the phone, right? So he wasn't. He, he, but he, was he on the phone the whole time? So he could hear it. And then he. Oh, okay. And I think they thought he was a police officer, officer initially because he knew his way around. He had a certain speak, a certain flow. He had authority. But obviously, the guy had done it so many times. Um, yeah, you've got to watch it. It's just it's one of those ones where you go, this can't be this can't be true. Because there's no way. I'm sorry, I'm a police officer. Perform fellatio on that man. No. 
I think that's the part where you're like, um, I think this isn't real. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think not you're me. a sick fuck and I'm going to hang up the phone. <laughs> exactly. You know, send the police around, dickhead. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was, It's look, it was riveting and really interesting to watch. Um, you know, I felt, I guess I felt sorry. It made me kind of feel maybe these people are so desperate for work and desperate for income that, they just they're fearful of losing their jobs and will do whatever. And you know, and a lot of these people got caught up in, in this whole thing were law abiding citizens. Uh, yeah, just fascinating and really highlighted just how gullible some people can be. You just you just it's in it's Well, it's also I guess the how much influence people and authority can have on people and you know, it's a contradiction. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. you go onto a TikTok now, you know, that, that fad that's going around, well, no, I'll take a video. No, you can't arrest me. What's your badge number? No, don't touch me. Yeah. I mean, there's this kind of anti-authority kind of movement that seems to be But prevalent. you do see in those videos that police try to take things way too far. I mean, obviously there's the Black Lives Matter movement, but, like, just in general, it's just you're just know you're in a position of, power and you're a cowboy so why I mean, doesn't not, that happen here of course there's there's instances. i think it does well i but, think there's uh, instances here but not to that event i mean we don't have those sorts of shootings right no no i just think america is you know a land of extremes yeah it's so interesting but look it's a great i really liked it a lot i watched the whole thing i binge watched this thing because it was just so unbelievable and uh, one of the is cops. It, it's a documentary or a series? Docu-series, yeah. Mm. But one of the police officers reminded me of Breaking Bad, you know, Walter's brother-in-law? Yeah, Hank. He kind of reminded me of like ha- a Hank in a way. There's something Hankish about him. Uh, yeah, I really liked it. It's. I think I could even watch it again because it's so I bizarre. I don't know if I want to watch that. You've got to watch like, it. It's just uh, too crazy. Um, so I've been reading... My Year of Living Vulnerably. I can't say that word. Why did I pick a book of word I can't say? <laughs> Just sign it. <laughs> so in the first instance I read this book because I like Rick is a journalist and I just admire him as a journalist. He writes for the Saturday paper. He's often on the drum on the ABC and he's previously the social affairs reporter at The Australian. I think he's an excellent writer. He's quite funny on Twitter. Some people might know him. He also wrote besides this book a best-selling memoir, 100 Years of Dirt. But anyway, in early 2019, Rick was diagnosed with complex PTSD based on a series of traumas he faced in his childhood. And he basically describes this diagnosis as a fancy way of saying that one of the people who should have loved me the most during childhood didn't. And so for a year after he gets this diagnosis, he goes consciously on this journey to get better, not cured, not fixed, just better. And so the book is about that year of vulnerability told with lots of humour and empathy. And essentially it's a series of essays on, on various topics like touch, forgiveness, animals, beauty, masculinity, loneliness, kindness. Was, and- was he, did he suffer abandonment or does it go into what happened to him as a child? Yeah, a series of different things. So his brother caught on fire um, on their farm and had to be airlifted off when he was really small. And then while his mother and his sister, they all went to the hospital. They, so he lived on a cattle station in rural Queensland at a thousand square kilometre cattle station. And so they took him off to hospital and he stayed there with his father who had an affair in front of him with the, 
the governess of the cattle station. I don't even know what that is, but yeah. So that's part of it. Um, and then other things happen to him as an, as an adult. He's also gay growing up in rural Queensland, which can't be the funnest of times. No. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, it, it wouldn't yeah. be very good for your journey. Uh, no. <laughs> but uh, mostly the book is a kind of a meditation on love or like a rediscovery in love and so how we practice it, how we need it, how we perceive it. And I guess this idea that to be vulnerable is to be open to love and both in terms of giving it and receiving it. Um, there's a quote that's also on the back cover which, side note, my dog ate this book, so the back cover is ripped. But it does say people think they people think they want cars and they will to get to jobs and appointments in cities and regions where public transport has failed them. But what gets them into those cars, out of the house, out of bed, for God's sake, is love. And so essentially to deal with this sort of childhood trauma, he, spent, he realizes he spent most of his life completely emotionally disconnected. And he feels like that's a point, that was a point of strength. Like he, you notice at one point he didn't cry for a decade. And like, if you don't feel, you don't get hurt, right? But despite this, he kind of finds himself emotionally undone by his trauma at certain points as an adult. And he goes through some particularly awful situations. Um, He finds himself having mental breakdowns. And he talks about this idea um, that's talked about a lot with trauma, but that the body remembers and that trauma is this thing that we carry with us for our whole lives that can come flooding back in an instant, like a trigger, a smell, a sound, just something someone does and it feels as real as it did in that moment. And so he describes it as like it lies in wait until certain things or moments or people remind you of those excruciating weeks and then it comes for you, all alarm bells and a palpable sense of doom. And when it does, you become the boy again. You don't just remember him, you are him. Mm. And so... One day back in like 2015, a year he says is when he lost, he says, my precious foothold on sanity was lost. His closest friend, she tells him, I'm so sorry that I I never told you that I love you. And he realized he never told her either, but he had thought that he'd liked it that way. Like they had this tacit agreement. They just knew that they loved each other. But he actually realized that saying it out loud and his friend telling him this made him feel better and he like, realizes maybe it's that simple is just to let people know you love them and accept people accept their love in return and he said like what I had relied on as my key virtue this massive unfeeling was in fact the thing that had corroded my circuits and siphoned so much joy from my life and so suddenly he just starts telling everyone around him that he loves them and trying to sort of connect with what love is. He starts, he talks about how he starts hugging everyone, like indiscriminately, probably inappropriately sometimes, like his friends, <laughs> his friends, people he interviews for work, the editor of his newspaper after a seven-hour federal budget lockup. <laughs> He decides to sort of, as he puts it, let the let the light in. And his diagnosis helps that journey along further. I'm a and hugger. Yeah, you are. Yeah, I, me too. Yeah, even in the office, I you know, I mean, I think it's really important. I mean, you're working with a whole bunch of people, and you sort of get to know them, and you know, I think you have to show a bit of compassion. And I think what you give, you get back. I think so too. I think so too, and. 
so he did also in this journey to reconnect with how people express love, he does stuff like submit himself to cuddle therapy. So that's in the touch chapter <laughs> where you pay someone to cuddle you for $150 an hour. I don't hour. think I'd like that at all. I don't think I'd like it either, but I would like to get paid $150 to cuddle someone. I don't that want to easy. cuddle. An hour is a long time. I know. I feel like if you cuddle someone. And then a someone, cuddle leads to a party passion. You that's know? what I was going to say. I'm like, if you cuddle someone for that long, I feel like you're going to start feeling something, you know? Arou- I mean, like, arousal. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like, no, I wouldn't I do it. No, no. Am I in love with this person? What's going on? <laughs> He's paying know. me 150 Am I a prostitute? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. What a job. Yeah. And he also does a neurofeedback program where he he tries to correct his brain waves, sort of reprogram his brain out of trauma responses. So he does this thing where I don't know how it quite works scientifically, but you're basically watching Pac-Man and if your brain is responding correctly, it will chase the ghost properly. But if it's not, Pac-Man doesn't move. So just standing there or lying there in this tube waiting for Pac-Man to move. It sounds extremely frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, but it's so interesting. Um, He also goes to Japan and visits the creator of Paro, the robotic seal who comforts elderly, lonely people in dementia wards. And I had to look it up on YouTube. Oh, my God, this seal (laughs) is so cute. He says in the book he's like, I saw it and immediately I would die for it. And that's how I feel. (laughs) Like it's adorable. What is it? It's a robot. Yeah, so like old people in dementia wards that they can't bring in actual animals like pet that can't it's not hygienic but so they have this fluffy seal and it's like an animatronic but it looks it looks so cute and it you can just pet it and stuff and it just helps people feel connected to i think a little pet so interesting like i think as you get older you know when you're young it's all tactile and you're hugging people and people hug you back but i think as you get older you know that touch kind of disappears people don't touch you as much you know what i mean so sad. There's nothing redeeming so about getting older. I think well, I think that's something a lot of people get from the pandemic when we were in a lockdown and some people, if you were single and you just you, you had no one touch you. I hope Margaret touches so, Chris. I'm sure she does. I don't need to know about it. <laughs> so that was the name of the book again? My, don't make me say this again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> My year of living vulnerably. No, but I was going to say, <laughs> shut, shut up. I can't say it. All right. He also goes to um Fukushima and he meets like a former cattle farmer. I found this part so sad. He spends like his days now on his radioactive farm, nursing all his cows who survived the tsunami against the government's wishes. Like they wanted all the livestock to have been slaughtered. But he, like, took a stand and was like, I'm keeping them alive, even though he can't obviously sell them anymore. But So they're just, like, sick cows and he just spends all his time. What, really sick? Street. How sick? I don't know. They have radiation poisoning and he probably does too from living on that farm. But, yeah, it's mostly, like, the book is about his friendships and relationships and that's with his mom and siblings and it's just really interesting. And um, I just was going to say there's, like, 
he notes in the book like humans are afraid of vulnerability. Oh, for fuck's sake, vulnerability. (laughs) (laughs) He says like in the animal kingdom, exposing our soft underbellies is often a sure path to death or injury. Softness is weakness. Actual death, social death, it's all the same. We fear it. But I guess like the summary of the book is like he realised that if you're trying to avoid this pain or weakness, you don't actually live. Like if you are never exposed, if you never leave yourself open to sadness or hurt, you also don't really feel joy and embracing that fear comes liberty. Like if people, even if people laugh at you, even if people take advantage of you, you're being yourself and there's truth in that and therefore strength. I'm a big believe the reveal. I mean, I think... When I was growing up, I always gave people the benefit of the doubt and, you know, they're having a bad day or something's happened to them. But now as I'm older, I kind of, I think, realise that that reveal is them saying to you, this is who I am. And you can't change it. And I think the decision has to be made whether you can have a relationship with that person knowing that sort of stuff. Well, there's certain things about people because you're like, well, I don't have to if I don't like that about you, I don't have to have that in my life. Like I don't need to tolerate certain things. Like I think that's something I feel as I get older. I'm like, oh, you know, again, like when you're younger, I've, or I was like this, I would always try to just like you're saying, see the best in people and, and put up with things because, you know, we might've had a, a long relationship for over a certain amount of years. But as I get older, I'm like, I don't need to tolerate that behaviour anymore, even if you've been in my life for a long time. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Uh, And also I think now if something happens, you know, I don't take it personally because I think if it wasn't me, that person, they'd do it to somebody else. It's their own own issue. Yeah, they're not targeting me. It's just who they are. Um, But I think if you live as you are, like if you embrace your own self, I think there's like very often once you do that, it sounds like like paradoxical but once you do that you suddenly don't care what other people think because you're like well this is me and take it or leave it and I think when you do that you're open to all of life and, and love and gentleness so I think like so many people hide bits of themselves off because they're scared what people will think but I think once you expose that and you're just like this is me this is who I am there's enormous liberty in that this is me I mean- I'm a paid hugger <laughs> Well, if I was that, I would tell everyone. No. What an interesting dinner party conversation. No, that'd be, I'm, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so this is our last ep for the year. Yes. Um, don't miss us too much. Don't miss us too much. We'll miss you. We're guys. coming back with season two next year, <laughs> according to Hugh. We just wanted to wish you all a really happy holiday uh, and yes. a great new year. Uh, stay safe. And Rest up. And be good. Be good or be bad. <laughs> be bad. Explore your kinks. <laughs> what was it? If you can't be good, be bad. No. <laughs> you can't careful. Be, if you can't, if you be, can't good, be good, be stupid. Be careful. <laughs> All right, Jackie Keese, I'll see you in the new year. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye.
Hey, it's Jackie Keys from On The Tools. We love doing this podcast and hope you like it too. Judging from the emails, you do. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to us on whatever platform you listen to the show on. If you have any suggestions or feedback, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. But don't tell our producer Hugh. He doesn't trust us.